Behind every success story, there is a long line of triumphs and defeats that remain hidden from others. These stories get condensed into journeys that minimize the struggle and wrap up with a happy ending. But we know that's not how life works. That's where From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay comes in. On today's show, you'll hear honest conversations about the challenges that Mark's guest faced and how they overcame adversity. Now, here is your host, Mark Azoulay. Welcome back to From the Ashes. I'm your host, Mark Azoulay. And we are here in season two, season two, episode one. Oh my gosh. It's incredible. I want to take a minute to thank all listeners out there. Because of your support of the show, we've been renewed for a whole year. So we are going until the summer of next year. The numbers keep climbing. We'll get renewed for another year on the network. It's been a great ride so far. Um, for those of you that are listening, you probably heard we got a new intro, uh, a little bit of higher budget intro. We got new branding. Um, coming up in the next couple of weeks, we're going to start streaming out videos. So you can see what me and my guests look like. There's a lot of really exciting things um, on the docket for From the Ashes. And again, thank you so much for your support. So today, we're going to do a little bit of a special episode to, to uh, signify this renewal. Uh, we have Melissa Radis, one of our most popular guests. Um, you're actually, hey. you're, the, you're the third most popular episode. You know that? Woo. You're number three. I'm going to the, get there. I'm going to get number one, my friend. It's, it's, it's the pilot which everyone listens to is the first one. It's Rick Tivers, because yeah. Rick Tivers, is, you know, he's, he's yeah, really good. He's number two. Yeah. But then it's Melissa Rattis. Mm-hmm. Then it's you. So you're... <laughs> I'm not coming. Yeah. At least I made it to the podium. <laughs> yeah, you're on, you're on the podium, you know? I mean, that's that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Um, so Melissa's back. Um, if you haven't listened to hers, hers is called, uh, you know, Combat Catholicism and Couples Counseling. That's one of the earlier episodes that we did. Uh, if you want to give her some more points, listen to that one again. And she's going to be interviewing yeah, me. Yeah, go ahead, do that. Yeah, so you can beat Rick. Yes. <laughs> you can beat my therapist. <laughs> You're going down, Rick. <laughs> but uh, she's going to be interviewing me uh, this time and learning about my story. So, Melissa, you, I'm sure you got something planned. Take it away. Oh, I have something planned. Oh, well, you know what's interesting is I've listened to all of your guests in season one. I'm blown away at each person's story, because you never really anticipate what's, what's going to be told. And I think one of the main questions that I have for you is, for you, going through season one, what's been your takeaway? Like, what's been things that come up for you in interviewing all of these people? I think a couple of things. I mean, yeah, the, the biggest and it's kind of trite, I guess, but that everybody has a story, you know, uh, you know this, I don't know if the listeners know this, but the people in season one are predominantly, not all of them, but most of them are like my friends, right? It's people that like, I know their colleagues, they're <laughs> yeah. people in my community, people that I, that I maybe worked with or whatever. Um, so what we have to do, what, what I've seen that's been really interesting is just seeing these different facets of people. You know, especially as it gets to their from the ashes story or, you know, that's our branding for, but really it's like, it's their trauma, right? It's what they overcame. It's really these big things that made them the person that they are today. And really hearing it laid out in the format of the show has been really uh, mind blowing to me, you know, and, and yeah. I feel closer and, and all the people that I've interviewed are highly successful individuals. So it's really interesting to, to see the adversity that they've overcome 
Um, mm-hmm. uh, I think back to kind of your episode too, right? We were talking a little bit before the show of, you know, the things that you've overcome. And I know there, there's even more there that yeah. for some people that would just totally cripple them. And yet, you know, here you are out there kicking ass. And that's just, yeah. just so preparing to, to see that. You know, what's interesting is when you listen through the episodes, you titrate in a little bit of your story, a little bit of like what has been your experience. And I think in this moment, right, as we go through this episode, I want to be able to honor the ashes that you've had to come through. And I I first want to look at what has been the ashes within your personal life, because we'll go into professional and relationships and all of that. But really, where do you come from? What ashes have you had to risen from just as a person? Yeah. So weird to uh, be on the other side of that question. <laughs> um, so yeah, so in the previous episodes, right, I, I talk about talk about drug addiction, which I think is just the big one and, and oftentimes kind of the easier one. But I think it started before then. Um, so it started before then. So the way I talk about drug addiction is that it was suicide. Quite frankly, it was like a long, slow suicide. And it was a way to make myself small and to remove myself from the world. You know, I I had struggled with depression my whole life. And, you know, it came from a lot of things. But I think the main thing is just feeling incredibly lonely as a kid. You know, I was like an overweight, nerdy Jewish kid growing up in rural Maryland. I didn't really have a community out there. Um, Mm -hmm. My parents, you know, wonderful people as they were, provided a lot of security, a lot of safety, um, a lot of just, you know, needs. But I never got the sense of emotional connection from them. Um, They both have their own trauma in their life. They both have, they're both immigrants. Um, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of story there. I'm not sure how much I want to go into that on the air. Mm -hmm. But essentially, I didn't feel like they were that interested in me. And then I remember early on uh, closing them up like really cutting them out of my life emotionally, you know, not really going Can to Can I ask you something oh, yeah. before you go on? I mean, you talk about how your parents didn't provide you what you were needing or seeing you. What if you could go back and it's this little mark that you're talking about. And if he were to answer right now, what is it that he was truly wanting to hear or feel from his parents that he wasn't getting? I think, I think it's being, feeling interested in me, mm-hmm. right? Or like joining my world a little bit more or getting into the hobbies that I was into or a little bit more guidance through like mentorship or through doing. I, I got like a lot of lectures and I got a lot of like life wisdom. And, and a lot of that was good. I mean, a lot of that I, I get now, but I didn't feel like joined a lot. You know, I was like put in activities, but not joined in activities. I was, you know, put in Hebrew school, but like my parents never learned Hebrew, right? I was like, you know, if I was reading a book or playing a video game, they weren't interested in what I was interested in, right? It was a lot of like, oh, come do this stuff with us, which is, you know, mostly great. And then I'm I'm grateful for, but they didn't, I feel like they didn't come into my world Mm -hmm. enough. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of tragic, right? Because look, they're very good at providing materially and and structurally and that's all wonderful but because they were so good at it this is my theory you can let me know you think about this because they were so good they had a kid with emotional needs right because i didn't actually have to worry that much about physical needs at all like i never felt in danger 
right? Never really stressed out about money. I kind of got whatever I needed. I didn't really ask for a lot, but I didn't really, you know, that was never an issue for me. Um, but because my physical needs were met, the hierarchy of needs, right? Like now I have emotional needs. And because they optimized for physical needs, they weren't able to meet me in that way. You know, so I was always very sensitive. I was always very quiet. Um, I was always very empathic. People would say that I was like wise beyond my years, et cetera, et cetera, um, which is great. But I mean, the tragedy is like, if they weren't as good at being the physical needs, then I would have been born closer to them, right? I, we would have been, we would have had a lot more to bond on um, mm -hmm. because we'd both be, you know, fighting the same fight. So then did it feel like you didn't have worth in their eyes other than, listen, we're, we're making these check boxes. We're providing you with all of these things. You could not want more. And for you, it was, am I not worthwhile for you to come into my world and show interest in what I truly find value in? So then does it feel that's where that true depression came from? Was that isolation of if my parents, can't even find me interesting how is the rest of the world supposed to find me interesting i think there was some of that for sure i i, I think it was i mean i was just buried in shame i mean yeah. a lot of it was around body image a lot of it was around being overweight that was a yeah. big thing that i carried for a long time i, mean, I still have it in in some form for sure um i think a lot of it was around yeah i mean the worthy of just being nerdy and not having that be supported i mean supported maybe like financially but not supported yeah. Yeah, with emotional interest i think that was like part of it i felt like those things like i didn't really have a nerdy community until we got the internet right now they able to actually <laughs> yeah. connect really right i was actually able to connect with people outside i mean i had my my best friend growing up my neighbor who was into a lot of that stuff but aside from that like didn't really have like a big group you know it's kind of weird to see like how popular like marvel and like dungeon dragons mm -hmm. and all that stuff is now because mm -hmm. when I grew up, especially the place where I grew up, like that was not cool. Like, you get bullied for that, right? But now it's like everyone's into that. So it's kind of, I mean, it's cool. It's just kind of strange to see, to see that. My guess is the people that are able to now produce that kind of stuff have the money to produce that stuff were the kids that back then couldn't produce that stuff. Right. Well, the people who were quote unquote picked on now have all the money to be like, no, actually, this is incredibly cool. And you guys are the losers. <laughs> right, exactly. It's like it's a power shift where like everyone yeah. loves magic cards and Dungeons and Dragons yeah. now. Um, for sure, for sure. So I, I think so there was some So you go into this feeling of like depressed and like my parents aren't interested in me. You start to go man introverted. Depression kicked in. Where did the drugs come in? So drugs came in. I, so I didn't use drugs until college. I was like completely straight laced. Yeah, I was completely straight laced. I, uh, you know, I used as part of the suicide thing and like, you know, keeping myself small. It was things that the word I used uh, in my therapy when I, when I was doing early recovery therapy was engrossing or consuming. Mm -hmm. Right. So I would get engrossed in like really complicated like fantasy novels or I played uh, World of Warcraft, which is like a really like really life-consuming video game mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. and just things that i could just like throw myself into right and just like really consume my brain uh but when i got older right like that stuff doesn't work anymore but drugs do, right drugs do the same thing where they can be like a total full body full brain full everything experience and quite frankly i, I was getting myself away from being sober like trying to hard kick my brain away from whatever I was feeling. I mean, a lot of it was loneliness. I think 
you know, shame was a big part of it. I think sadness and grief was a big part of it. I just like didn't want to feel any of that. So I would find something that would just consume me and I could just yeah. focus entirely on that. Yeah. It's interesting how there's like a, an, a need to escape life emotions, things that come up and just the innate human nature to say, I don't want to feel something negative. Help me escape as quickly as possible. Yeah, 100%. And, and my parents didn't, like, we didn't really talk about emotions. Like I tried to, I, I you yeah. know, think back on that, like, and they were very positive people. They were like always talking about what they're doing. They're very like productive. They were very like, they're always busy. They're always, there's always something going on with them all the yeah. time. Um, didn't talk about emotions. The only emotion that came out was anger, which came out a lot from my mom was a lot of anger, a lot of resentment. Um, just really nasty things that she would say and, and to everybody. Um, I think mainly me and my dad, mainly like the men in the house, but just that was the emotion that was shown the most. But as far as like grief or even like really joy or happiness or gratitude, like it, it was like a very like emotionally narrow experience, um, which I didn't, I didn't know was, was weird until I started talking to other people. Right. Which I think is so common in family systems. Like you think that every family is like your family until you you go out of it but by the time you go out of it you're like you know eight or whatever right you're like you're old so you <laughs> the so, conditioning okay. has already happened so what sounds like is the family system created an imprint what imprint has been created on you as you're entering into college you're now using substances that is still being carried through with this family system yeah i mean i think the imprint was just that like, I wasn't worthy that like the me who was me is like not lovable and just like not interesting. How so did you I, try and like show your worth then? Well, that was the drugs, right? I mean, I created new me, right? Like I became like a little punk, right? I shaved my head. I like started like getting, hanging out with like tough people or whatever, right? I joined like an anarchist collective. I mean, there's so much in there of me just like really trying to like, again, I go back to suicide, like kill the younger me and create a, create a new person, you know? And I would, I was so cocky. I was, I was cocky. I was just like insecure, but like, you know, when someone's like, Hey, do you want to try cocaine or whatever? Right. I'd be like, Oh yeah, I do that tons of time. Like I'm a real tough kid and I would end up doing way more and I wouldn't know what I was doing, but I wouldn't want, I was like so insecure. I wouldn't want to admit that I was like afraid or that I was way out of my depth. So that pattern mm -hmm whether it be about drugs or about sex or just about like dangerous situations or whatever it was like that thing of like not ever admitting that I was afraid um, got me into a lot of bad situations because I, I couldn't say like, Hey, I don't feel comfortable here. Right. Even though I'm, I was terrified. I'm curious about this persona that you created while you were on drugs. Where did this come from? I mean, I think it's like what an 18 year old thinks is cool. Right. Like, is it though? I don't know that's what I thought was cool. I don't know. I mean, it was, I think it's probably like probably based in like comic books, trying to be like kind of like a edgy, mm -hmm. like anti-hero or like anti-establishment, like rebel. Like that's there's a lot of that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There was like a lot of mm -hmm. that. There was a lot of just like, you know, fuck the government. Right. Like they don't get you. Yeah. Catholic is brainwashing you. Like we're doing the yeah. real shit here. Like a lot of like very anti-authority, very anti, like countercultural. Um, yeah, just like a lot of anger. I mean, I was angry at my parents, right? And then that mm -hmm. anger, I think, mm -hmm. came out in the persona uh, as, yeah. as it was happening. Well, 
so it kind of makes sense that you went for the punk, right? Because the punk can freely express that anger and it's like part of that persona. I think, I, you know, I know that there's a break coming up, but I, when we enter into the other side of the break, I want to hear about you rising from that substance abuse and finding yourself rather than the persona you were wanting to portray. That's great. That's, that's the from the ashes story. <laughs> so mm-hmm. thank you all for tuning in. We'll catch you on the other side of the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In Mark's work with high performers and business owners, it is becoming increasingly clear to him that their biggest obstacle to success is themselves. They are experts in their field, but are dragged down by their anxiety, poor time management, inability to focus, or self-sabotage. His role is to help you overcome these emotional and organizational issues so that you can truly excel in your business and your personal life. One of the most common hurdles that he sees is perfectionism, a crippling anxiety around performance. It's a fear of not being good enough, being publicly embarrassed, or of disappointing others. These fears paralyze brilliant people and bring them to their knees. This course will help you to break free from this mental prison and have more agency in your world. In this online course, we will break down the prison of perfectionism so that you can break out of it. For more information and to sign up, visit mark-azulay.teachable.com. That's mark, M-A-R-C-A-Z-O-U-L-A-Y.teachable.com. Where can you listen to some of the world's top life coaches ready to dish out success tips and entrepreneurial guidance? The Voice America Empowerment Channel will do just that. Whether it's personal growth, building a better business, or inspirational life stories, make it a daily habit to tune into our programs. From weight loss and personal branding to law of attraction and increased happiness, you'll find it every day at VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. Our thoughts and feelings not only affect our own lives, but the lives of everyone around us. Find new meanings of love, authentic expressions, and better connections with the people in your life. Tune in to Love Light with Dr. Jean Marie Farish. This program will feature guests and discuss ideas that will bring a better life to you. When you find this perspective on love, it will change everything. Listen live every Friday at 12 noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You are listening to From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay. To reach the show today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to podcast at mark-azoulay.com. Now, back to From the Ashes. Welcome back to From the Ashes. I'm your host and also, well, I guess I'm not your host. You're, no, you're the guest now. You're bro. the host. 
You're the host. Welcome back to From the Ashes with your host, Melissa Raddatz. We have our ghost here. We'll see our guest here, Mark Azule, and he's going to tell us all about how he had risen from the ashes after diving in to substance abuse. Substance abuse. So, I mean, I think this is a somewhat common story, right? So, I'll fast forward through a lot of the details, but essentially my substance use escalated from, you know, smoking weed every day to doing a bunch of Coke to doing a bunch of party drugs to um, using opiates, right? It just like kept getting more and more. I was what in the industry we call a poly drug abuser, which essentially means yeah. you take everything, right? It's a handful of what's in the bowl and shove it into your mouth. Yeah, like, right? It's like, that's what I was like. If, like, I didn't have a drug of choice. I mean, actually, the drug that wasn't my choice was alcohol. I wasn't actually a big drinker, but everything else, whatever was available, whatever I could find, whatever I could buy, I would just get it. You know, yeah. um, that was, that was kind of how that whole thing worked. And um, you hear us a lot in AA, but like, I, I, there were signs, right? Like I had friends that, you know, got arrested. I had friends that, you know, OD'd. I had friends that, you know, dropped out of school, right? Like you see all these signs of like, hey, this life is like not going to work for you. But the addict, which in this case was me, like it didn't get real until I OD'd, right? <laughs> until like it actually happened to me. Even though I was seeing all this stuff around me, it wasn't until like I actually died, right? That I, uh, that I was able to make um, a change. I feel like this, I feel like just a bombshell just went off. You, you, you almost died? No, I didn't know you almost died or you died. I did, I didn't think I did die. Was that your first one and only? Yes, I was one and only OD. But it's like, oh my God. you know, we're talking about suicide. Like, it, I mean, it finally happened, right? It's but successful, right? right? It's finally successful. All that shame and self hatred finally culminated into something. But uh, well, I mean, what happened was, you know, I, I am so grateful for the girl I was dating at the time. She was an RA. Um, yeah. and she, had, she had Narcan, right? Oh, God. Yeah. And yeah. I, was, I was with her. And I mean, I, I get kind of emotionally even thinking about it because it's like, if she wasn't there, I would be dead, right? Wow. Like, because most of my use was like alone in my dorm room, not my dorm room. I was like a campus housing, you know, but like alone, like nobody was around. I wasn't like party using, you know, opiates. So yeah. it was just because I happened to be there with her and she happened to have Narcan that I even had a chance. So there's like wow. so many like, opportunities right i mean it's just crazy to think back to be like that was so they're so lucky in a lot of ways um, it like gives me the chills just thinking about the fact that circumstantially if things had been different where you were completely by yourself you wouldn't even be here at this moment right the story would end it yeah right but really there was and i feel like it was meant to be that someone was there because of how impactful you are with the people in your life now. That's powerful. Yeah. So you, you, you OD. Luckily you're, you're revived. And then what happens for you? Well, I mean, so then I get, you know, I get shipped to the hospital. She calls the campus, you know, medical team, campus police. Um, I get sent to the, you know, Pittsburgh hospital, you know, get, get pumped and I'm, you know, I'm fine. Um, but that that like that woke me up. <laughs> you know, that was, Are you that was well, a real yeah, wake up call. You literally had to wake up. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Wow. That was a real wake up call. And and it's I say that with a laugh because 
unfortunately, maybe it's dark humor. Like for a lot of people that isn't yeah. like a lot of people OD yeah. and they keep using, but you know, again, that pattern of being like, Oh yeah, like I'm totally fine. I'm not afraid. Like I, I was afraid. And I think it, it took okay. that level of intensity to make me truly afraid and to be able sure. to admit, to be able to admit to myself that I was afraid and that I was way, 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 way out of my depth. You know, I like yeah. that. I was not this person that this yeah. person was just like a web of lies. Right. And just, yeah. and just stacks of lies on top of themselves. So. So yeah. then what, t- talk to me about this transition that ends up occurring where you, you know, you OD, you're in the hospital, you have this wake up call of like, this isn't me to then becoming this well-rounded, very established clinician in Colorado, right? We jump from Pittsburgh to this clinician in, in Colorado. And I, I'm curious about how you ended up become, like saying to yourself, I think I figured out my path now. Where did yeah. that even come from? I mean, it wasn't that clean. Let me tell you that. There was so many steps between that and now. But mm-hmm. I mean, essentially what happened is, you know, wake up in the hospital. It was actually my the girl I was dating her roommate, who was a person I was also very close with, um, recommend that I go to therapy because she, she had been seeing a, a campus, a, a therapy person on the, uh, on the college campus. But I saw the same guy, uh, Dr. Jeff Beyer. I, I think I can name him on this. Uh, mm-hmm. And he was like a surrogate dad. Like we, yeah. I saw him weekly on, you know, at, at the CMU campus. I saw him outside in his private practice. We figured out how to like, or I, not we, he figured out how to like get my campus credits to count. So I didn't really have to pay anything. Um, I mean, just like really like great. Went to bat for you. Sounds really like you. went to bat for yeah. me. Mm-hmm. Um, he definitely saved my life. It's him. And then also um, Dr. Patricia Carpenter, who was a, a professor uh, at Carnegie Mellon. I took a class called Eastern and Western Approaches to Mind and Body. And it blew my mind. It was, we were finally talking about mm-hmm. like health in a real way. And yeah. You know, there was, we were talking about doing mind body and I started meditating and I started uh, doing yoga and I started like thinking about what it meant to be a fully holistically healthy person. And I met with her um, every week for office hours for two years. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like the rest of my time. I met with her every week for office hours and we, we just drank tea and just talked. Um, She, unfortunately she, she since passed away. She was quite old when I was meeting with her then. Um, can but I tell was, you that it's fascinating that you talk about two individuals that saved your life, this male and this female, who became these parent roles yes. for you, who showed you your worth. Yes. Yes. How these awesome are, is that? Yes. These are my new parents. 100% yes. that I'm meeting with every week that are taking on these roles for me. And that was the thing that helped me. And I know that's not a thing that everyone has access to. And it's, but that is what I needed. And it was just like long-term, right? two and a half, three year long relationships, the whole rest of my time in college of meeting with them, getting to know them, crying with them, like just being like, just leaving it all out on the table where they really did save my life. Both of them, um, you know, well, that shout all out com- to them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Right. Like, like, and just to see, yeah. I mean, I hope, and I think I am maybe in some ways through my practice to be that for somebody else, mm. but to really have that experience of like an adult, I mean, they're both older, but like an adult, like really stepping in and, and what felt like real love and care, yeah. you know? Um, yeah. And, and, and so I think, I think it was cool and crazy how it turns out that way. So you're starting to 
be introduced to therapy, becoming mindful, becoming more self-aware. How did you end up out in Colorado? Yeah, so I uh, I wanted to go to uh, <laughs> I wanted to go to Cambodia and become a monk, right? I wanted to okay, like yeah mm-hmm. yeah I like wasn't ready to move on, you know, and I was really falling full in on this Buddhism thing and this mindfulness thing because it was it was really helping me. Um, yeah. And essentially, my my family was like, "Don't go there because if you go there, you're never coming back." And uh, and it, I mean the, the, that wasn't a threat. I mean that was right. And like, I've since been to Cambodia and they were, and they were right. Right. Like I would have either died in the jungle for some crazy parasite, or I would have just like become a monk in the monastery and just like never came back. Right. Like I was not ready to do that. Um, So I talked to Dr. Carpenter and she was like, Hey, go to the school in Boulder called Naropa, which is a Buddhist Uh university and apply there and go nowhere else. Apply nowhere else. Right. Like this is where you're going. Yeah. And I was like, this is where I'm going. <laughs> <You know? laughs> okay, I will. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, I, and I did it. And um, it was just like, I mean, that's a three-year program. And the focus of that program is boost psychology, but it's also about yourself. So all the papers that you write are about yourself. Mm-hmm. You do a, you're in a group therapy, you know, every semester with the same people. Um, people do, you have meditation instruction, meditation practice. So you're doing that kind of self-work. Oh, you're doing these crazy projects about yourself, about your history, about your geneogram, your, your past. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. it's three years of a treatment program. And I yeah. use that as a treatment program. Like I did a lot of deep work All right, there. Good. good. Um, and in the end, you just are ready to be a therapist. And that's when I met you. I met you coming out of, uh, right. coming out of Europa, right? At the counseling that's center. That's right. And you were very, very much a Neuropian style therapist. That's for sure. I came from... Regis University, which is, you know, this, it's a therapist training grad school program, but there are, there are some differences, but it was interesting to see how we both worked together and came together in this one treatment facility. Yeah. I, I mean, want you to must hear about me. your experience in the treatment facility. <laughs> I mean, you know about my experience, you were also <laughs> there, but uh, no, you must have seen me. I'd be curious to, you know, catch up at some point about about that because I was really hardcore into the mindfulness stuff coming out right because I'm, yep. I'm in I was in early recovery I like my brain was still mushy and I found this new identity as this like Buddhist individual you know I mean I've since I've just walked it back a little bit but um, I think in the beginning I was like very much in oh, very that. much so mm-hmm. I remember yeah. um but no, and then we're working at a treatment facility and it's just, I mean, you know, but for the listeners out there, we worked in a, um, the drug and alcohol counseling treatment center that worked with the Boulder County Justice Department, mainly working with people that, you know, had DUIs or that had possession charges or that had anything kind of like any kind of drug related misdemeanor, we would mm-hmm. work with them. And, you know, me coming from cloud nine of this Buddhist thing and having these spiritual beliefs and like believing that, you know, there's good in people and being... You know, believing it, but I would also say, uh, honestly, being like kind of brainwashed and kind of naive, um, mm-hmm. taking on kind of a new identity to see the way that this place was run. Like the clients were actually great, but like the way yeah. the system just like ground people down Ooh, yeah. and the way that the staff there was just like gossiping about clients and that, like the corruption oh, that awful. we would see. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Like I had this idea. I mean, therapy was on such a pedestal for me. Because, it, you know, it saved my life, literally, right? Right, right. Um, 
And Carnegie Mellon, you know, has an incredible, I didn't know this until coming out, but where I went to school has an incredible counseling place because, you know, just like many kind of intelligent tech schools, their suicide rate is like unbelievably high because a lot of engineers and, and computer scientists kill themselves in college. Um, and I, I tried, right? I mean, that was me, right? So like yeah. I, I had access to really good treatment, right? But then to, yeah. then to see what treatment looks like mm-hmm. to the people that are less fortunate mm-hmm. and to see what treatment looks like to people that are, you know, under the law, right? And just, oh, my oh God. God, it was just so brutal. It was just so brutal to be in that. It, you felt like your heart went out to the, the people coming in because they really were just like awesome people who had life experiences that kind of they were coping with using substances and get labeled as if like there's some sort of character flaw. They're broken and we have to talk down to them. And it was just like, what is this? This doesn't make any sense to me yeah so yeah it was, I know. It was crazy and just to and see then, like the staff do that right like like i get I that it's like okay the system does that the system has a certain punitive thing like you get arrested whatever right but to see the staff that we're supposed to be like the other side of it like yeah. do it even worse sometimes like even be worse than like the cops was that was heartbreaking that was definitely heartbreaking. i know i know so so let me ask you a question i mean obviously you recognize that, you know, working at that facility, it didn't fit for you. It didn't fit for how you viewed doing therapy, especially because it sounds like you came from a powerful experience of doing therapy. What was the jump? What was that from the ashes moment to say, I need to branch out, I need to grow? Well, so, I mean, that was when I started fighting for my life, which I think is I think that's the name of the, I mean, the, name of the episode. Uh, this idea of like being like, look, I didn't get sober to be miserable, mm-hmm. right? Like if I was mm-hmm. gonna be miserable, I might as well be high because at least I won't be able to feel it, right? That's always been like a guiding principle of my life. Like I want to have a life that's worth living. And again, from the suicidal thing, like that's a big part of it is like, I, I didn't want to die, but I didn't want to live my life, which I think are different, right? Like I didn't want, like I still wanted to live. I still like the life I was living, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that agency, without going too much de- de- detail, like had a big schism, right? It like fell apart. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah. the, the director was replaced. Um, it was really torn apart. About half the staff left, um, including, you know, me. And I think you Us. left shortly <laughs> after, right? Like there was a giant, yeah. a giant just kind of cleave through the system. And I was yeah. in this place of like, okay, um, either I get a job at another shitty agency because I was just bitter and just, just burnt mm-hmm. out at that point. Or I try private French. I, I try to do my own thing. Um, so I was like, yeah, I had some, some support of my family. I had some money in the bank and I was like, okay, let me just like try it. Let me give me like six months to just like try it and like throw everything at this, take online courses, yeah. you know, yeah. talk to everybody, network with everybody in the world, right? Like get a million coffees every week. Like just try mm-hmm. to like grind it, like use this like crazy added intensity that I have and throw it into business and try to make something happen. Um, You know what, so if I reflect back, like on just this intensity that you use to get yourself going, but then we look back at this small Mark, who was afraid, uncertain, hid in the basement, didn't feel like he had self-worth, and then to see you just like hit the ground running and say, I'm 
going to do this. And you start to talk to people, you branch out, and you became just like this whole other person than what was. How fascinating is it to see that that journey happened? Well, I think that person was always there. Yeah. And I think this is probably something that I've talked to my parents about at some point, but that person was always there. And that person was just really shut down and really buried and didn't like get whatever nutrient that I needed. And I think mm-hmm. it's a shame when I go back to my family, this is common for people listening. Like, you know, I, I regress and my parents still get the me that's like shut down and awkward and like, doesn't really know my place. and doesn't know how to talk to people. Like I, mm-hmm. I can go back into that. And I only go into that when I'm around my family, they don't see the, the me that, you know, they really don't. And that's tragic. Like they yeah. don't really know yeah. who I am out here. Um, yeah. in, in that way, I don't really experience that. I mean, sometimes I go on a trip with like my friends they can see that because I, I, there's like some kind of counterbalancing force. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think that person was always there. I, I just think, I just don't think that person got the particular flavor of love that, that he needed to like blossom. Absolutely. Yeah. That's like the parts work, right? Like if we look at internal family systems, we do parts work, you know? So I'm looking forward to this next segment. So after the break, we're going to dive right into this one. So you guys stay tuned. Catch you on the other side. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. In Mark's work with high performers and business owners, it is becoming increasingly clear to him that their biggest obstacle to success is themselves. They are experts in their field, but are dragged down by their anxiety, poor time management, inability to focus, or self-sabotage. His role is to help you overcome these emotional and organizational issues so that you can truly excel in your business and your personal life. One of the most common hurdles that he sees is perfectionism, a crippling anxiety around performance. It's a fear of not being good enough, being publicly embarrassed, or of disappointing others. These fears paralyze brilliant people and bring them to their knees. This course will help you to break free from this mental prison and have more agency in your world. In this online course, we will break down the prison of perfectionism so that you can break out of it. For more information and to sign up, visit mark-azulay.teachable.com. That's mark, M-A-R-C-Azulay, A-Z-O-U-L-A-Y, dot teachable.com. For teens, by teens, and about teens, tune into the uncensored and unedited discussions with young adults on Express Yourself every Sunday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time and 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Smart, tenacious teen hosts and reporters from around the country speak up and speak out. Express Yourself. Visit the website for the show to find out more at expressyourselfteenradio.com. And check out the show on the Voice America Empowerment Channel every Sunday. 
Are you ready to move to your next level? Listen for Empowering Women, Transforming Lives with host Rebecca Hall Greider. Each show will focus on a central topic with discussion, guests, and your questions being featured. Our show is perfect for women who feel a call in their heart to step out in a bigger, more powerful way in their life and just need some encouragement, inspiration, and practical steps to support them on their journey. Empowering Women, Transforming Lives can be heard live every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel with a replay of the show Sunday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Listening to From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay. To reach the show today, please call 1 888 346 9141. That's 1 888 346 9141. Or send an email to podcast at mark azoulay.com. Now, back to From the Ashes. Welcome back to From the Ashes. I'm your guest. Mark Azoulay, yeah. and we're turning the tables with Melissa Radis as our host. That's right. I'm the one that's in charge now with my my guest, my host pants on. Yes, there it is. Okay, so what we've done is in, in these interims, well, the beginning part is the personal rise from the ashes, which included the substance abuse and kind of living, not feeling like you have a whole lot of worth. Going into the second segment of IOD, I have people in my life who truly show me that I have worth. And now I'm starting this professional career, launching into this beautiful lifehood that you have. But there's one thing that is missing that I'm so excited to talk about, Mark. And because I'm a couples therapist, I want to hear your Rise from the Ashes stories about relationships. I don't hear... I mean, I heard a lady friend when you were dating the RA, but I'm really curious about Mark and his love connections. God, I know. This is like, okay. <laughs> I would not say I'm a, I haven't rose from the ashes. I would say I'm rising from mm. the ashes. I am dating somebody better. now who I'm very excited and interested in. Uh, it's yeah. going very well, um, yeah. which is great. And it's very new for me to actually be, open to love let me put it that way right because you talk about internal family systems right like so much of my childhood experience was pushing away love right was like pushing away like the love of my parents because they were trying and i don't blame them for that they were trying they were kind of one note trying by like material things or whatever which is mm-hmm. you know good but like you know i got this thing me and my mom still fight about this it's really funny um where like she wants to buy me shoes right? Because she loves yeah. shoes. Um, yeah. And I would go to the shoe store and then she wants to buy me two pairs of shoes. And I'm like, no, I only want one pair of shoes. And then we have a fucking fight. We have such a fight every time where I'm like, no, like I just want one pair of shoes because I get confused if I have two pairs of shoes. I just want to have one that I just use. And she's like, no, but don't you want to treat yourself? Like I want to, you want to do the shopping experience. Like it's a whole just mm-hmm. like thing and this is the mm-hmm. this is the pattern with my mom particularly where like she will buy me something she'll try to feed me something and i will spit uh-huh. it back out 
right? Oh, like yeah, I'll be like, yeah. no, I don't want that, right? Yeah. I want like love, interest, attention. Like I want you to be there for me when I was younger. I don't want uh-huh. boys. Stuff. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so right, that that still happens now. And I and that was like my childhood experience of just like pushing away this type mm-hmm. of love, right? Like it's hard for mm-hmm. me to ask my parents, you know, for money for 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 things. Like I just don't sure. do that yeah. at all. Um so anyway, so you you have that, right? And then you have the drug abuse thing, which you know, had a lot of anger and a lot of pushing people away. And I, I had relationships during that time, but they were very surface level. I never let people in and they were the kind of toxic addict relationships, right? Of like, both of us are hot messes. Um, and then I mm-hmm. had a, a habit, which, which you know from our conversations outside of the, the show, that of pursuing like unavailable women, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, emotionally, yeah. physically, whatever, but like pursuing people where they weren't able to give me what I actually needed in a relationship. You know, um, I am curious about that. Why, why the pull to go towards women who were unavailable to you? Was it because it, your mom was also unavailable to you? So there was a draw to like, I'm familiar with this emotionally unavailable. Yeah. I mean, Freud would definitely agree with that. And, 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 I'll I, thank and you, I, Freud. yeah, I mean, I definitely have an Oedipal complex for sure. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that's part of it. I think part of it is it, I didn't have to be vulnerable because they didn't really want that. So it was a protective mm-hmm. mechanism as well. You know, I, I, I think like I'm more comfortable or have been more comfortable being deprived. Right. So I can stay in yeah. this, in the state of deprivation or, or, or restriction. Um, there's a safety in that. And I can stay like in a role of like a caregiver or, you know, masculine figure or whatever, but not have to, be submissive or I have to be taken care of right because my like taking like I didn't really get taken care of in the way that I uh, I, I think I needed so there's a lot of fear around like actually needing somebody and so much of my motivator has been individualism like whether it be individual from my family or individuating from the counseling center or building a practice I mean right my practice is like it's me. I mean, I have an assistant, so we have technically I have an employee, but like private practice is like one person, right? It's a business of mm-hmm. one person. So it's like, it's mm-hmm. a very individual way of looking at things. So to actually be like interdependent on somebody and to actually like co-regulate, these are all therapist words, but like, whatever, like to let someone into your life, let somebody into your life is really hard for me. Truly. Yeah. yeah. In a way that's like not performative. It's like very, very difficult. And dating unavailable women kick that can down the road. Let me put it that way. Yeah, it certainly did, didn't it? So then let me ask you a question. It, it sounds that from our conversations, you've had a series of relationships that not just had a pattern of unavailability, but there's been patterns that have evolved from dating. And from your experience, what do you think you see emerging as patterns when you were entering into a dating relationship? Um, like recently? I, I think recently the things that I've fallen into have been like not sharing much of myself or much of like what really matters to me. Like the same thing that I did as a kid, right? Like that's mm-hmm. still happening. Um, I think what's what has emerged has been trying to or something to happen too quickly, like falling into roles rather than like 
getting to know the person. Mm-hmm. I think that's definitely happened uh, because I do really want it now. I don't think I've really wanted it, wanted a relationship in the way that I have now for a, for a while. Um, I think that's one that's emerging. I, I think like, you know, until I did a lot of masculinity work and learned that, you know, masculine and feminine energy, again, not tied to gender, but masculine and feminine energy are different. I think I would get like resentful or judgmental when like the woman that I was dating wasn't like me or wasn't like contributing in the same way to the relationship that I was. Yeah. Um, which I think is something that I really appreciate about my current relationship is that we contribute in very different ways. And I don't hold resentment around that. Right. Like, like exactly. I can do me. Right. And yeah. she can do her. And it's like, it feels natural to both of us and they're both complementary, Right. And, and for me, like respecting the feminine took, took time because I, you know, had some misogyny, had some anger at my mom, but like mm-hmm. respecting the ability to like recognize and create beauty. Right. Or the ability to like be an inspiration and to be um, motivating to like do something romantic, like stuff that I would never like. I would never drive and like watch a sunset. Are you kidding me? Like, I just don't do that. Oh, that's beautiful. Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But if I'm dating somebody and it's this person in particular, like I feel motivated and inspired to do that. And it's like. I mean, it's good for me. It's good for her. And it gets yeah. me to have this experience of, of just beauty that I just like would not do for myself ever. Like sure. 0% chance, right? Um, stuff so like that. my question for you is what has it been like dating or being in the dating world as a therapist? Oh, it sucks. <laughs> Look, it, 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 it sucks on both ends of the spectrum, right? I mean, it yeah. sucks because... Most therapists that I've dated, and I don't, again, I don't want to name any names or anything, uh, have been way too serious, way too serious, trying to make the perfect therapeutic relationship, like trouble having fun. Like there's just a lot of just Uh um, like intensity when you're dating somebody who's like life is about studying the human being, right? And then if you date people that are not therapists, like they don't understand anything. You become their therapist, right? Right. Right. You either become their therapist or they can't go deep or their version of relate. Like they get spooked. If I talked emotionally, that happened to some people I dated, you know, last year where I would try to talk emotionally. They're not used to like a man, I think in particular, like talking about feelings and it just like broke their brain, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Or, or, you know, uh, also being sober, right? Like this person I'm dating now is actually in recovery. And funnily enough, it's the first person I've ever dated in recovery. That's, I think that's a good thing. That's yeah. a good thing. Yeah, because people that are not therapists that I've dated, like substance use, like I'm okay being around it, but I think I'm realizing that I actually can't date it. Yeah. Like it's actually yeah. as difficult for me, more difficult than I, than I think I was able to admit until being in this relationship and seeing like the contrast of like, it's not a negotiation. It's not like, it's like not even talked about because it's like we're on the same page. Right. Whereas with other people that are, you know, both not therapists and, you know, maybe borderline alcoholic, it's like, I have to, it's like always awkward. And so it's awkward for them where they're like not drinking because I think that I'm going to be worried about mm-hmm. it or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. Like it just, mm-hmm. it's, it's always in play. Whereas right. with this person, well, it's just like, not is, when you're like around friends or a social setting, you can always choose to disengage. You can go to home. But when you're in an intimate relationship and you don't want to partake in any sort of substances, your, your partner is partaking in it. It's in your face. You can't right. really disengage. So it's different. Right. 
Well, and and many people bond using substances. So they're also not yep. getting their bonding piece, right? Yep. yep. Like for them, drinking together is like romantic, which I totally get and respect, right? Like mm-hmm. having a glass of wine is like how they bond and how they talk about their day. Or, you know, smoking weed at the end of the day is how they unwind and like laugh. And like for yeah. me at the partner to be like, yeah, I just like don't do that. Like I'll be around you, but like I don't want to do it. It, it's it's friction. I mean, it just creates friction. I feel like it, yeah, it creates automatically just a wedge already. So let me ask you a question. How would you, based off of your life experiences, define love? Not like the global definition of love, but how would you even define it? One minute left in this show. You're going to ask me to define love? I, You're welcome. We were just talking before the show that I have no idea what that even means anymore. Like, mm-hmm. I, I have the feelings Mm-hmm. but I don't know what love means. I don't even know if I've ever been in love. I don't know if I personally have had my aperture open enough to be able to actually experience love. And that's what's been kind of like messing with me internally the past couple of weeks, right? Like I don't, I don't know. I, I, I really don't know. And I know that's like a growing edge for me is to be able to like practice giving and receiving love. But what's interesting is that you talk, so if we, if we break this down, right, love, we look at love languages, it sounds like your parents, their love language was gift giving, and that's all they really knew how to do. And what happens when your mom tries to buy you shoes, she's trying to show you that she loves you. And in these other circumstances, you're like, it sounds like quality time is your love language. Yeah. And, and so when you're able to find someone who has that same love language, it's, you're less wanting to reject it, but it's like, we can align in this moment. So this is a huge topic, but unfortunately we do have to wrap up here. <laughs> Maybe we'll have to come you back on. We can do a whole like uh, we can do a whole love episode. Um, you want to? Uh, where can people find you, Melissa? Any any final words before we end off? Oh man, where can you? So I have a private practice. I am training interns to be couples therapists, and I. My business is Kenosis Counseling in Colorado. And yeah, email me at melissa at kenosiscounseling.com. Great. Thanks for tuning in. And we will catch you next week on From the Ashes. Thank you for joining host Mark Azoulay on From the Ashes. Be sure to tune in again live next Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Meet triumph and defeat and treat those two imposters the same.